Welcome to the podcast of Destiny Community Church. We're starting a brand new series today called Own It. And this is a series that before Pastor Rocky went out of town, he and I sat down to really uh, kind of hash this thing out and talked about what we'd want to do. And so I'm going to be able to open this series the first two weeks, uh, and then he's going to close the series out with the following two weeks. And here are the topics that we're going to be covering over the, the four weeks of the series. The first week today is Own Your Faith. Uh, the second week is Own Your Relationships. The third week, Pastor Rocky's going to talk about Own Your Maturity. And then finally, he's going to close this out with a sermon called You Don't Own You. And so I'm really excited about this sermon series. We were talking about it, praying about it. Uh, we knew that we wanted this to really uh, correlate and hold hands with the things that are really important to DCC, our core values, we call them. Uh, and around here at DCC, we call them the four Ds of destiny um, because uh, it's alliterated and it's easier to remember. And so over the, the, the course of the next four weeks, what we're going to do is all these sermons are going to line up with the things that are really, really important to us here at DCC. And the four Ds of destiny, in case you haven't been through Discover Destiny or, or maybe you just are, are kind of foggy on this, the four core values that we have, the four Ds are this, discovery. We believe that it's imperative that we give people an opportunity to discover a relationship with Jesus Christ. And God has blessed us so much even in this year, in 2018. We've seen so many people come to Christ, and it's been amazing. Uh, the next D is uh, dependence, that we, in our spiritual formation, we've got to depend on each other. We've got to build relationships with other believers. And then development, we believe that we've got to develop and grow in God's Word. And then finally, direction. We believe that everybody has a direction that God's put in your life and, and ways that you can serve the kingdom of God together. And so all four of these weeks are going to kind of mesh with those ideas. And so uh, right now what I want to do is I want to just dive right into God's Word. I want to read a passage of Scripture that's maybe a little bit lengthy, but I really think that it's important to, to help set the stage for where uh, I believe God's taken us today. And so we're going to be in John chapter 4. I want to give you a moment to get there in your Bibles if you'd like to do that. If you're on a Bible app, uh, I'll be in the ESV. It'll be a little bit easier to follow along. And of course, as always, the words will be on the screen. And this is uh, this passage of Scripture, this story, this telling of this instance in, uh, in Jesus' life and his ministry here on the earth is amazing to me because every time I read it, there is something else about this that just kind of stands out to me, something else that just kind of jumps off the page. And I'm praying that something like that happens for you today as well as we read God's Word because it is alive. And so let's read. Uh, we're going to be jumping around a little bit. I'll give you a little bit of warning. I'll put the turn signal on before I change directions on you, and, uh, and I'm sure that you guys will be able to keep up. Uh, John chapter 4, let's start in verse 7. It says this, it says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. 
Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And so from there, it goes into a dialogue of some theological differences about where they should worship. Really, what we can surmise is that this lady tries to change the subject really fast because it got awkward quick. Uh, And so let's just jump down to verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking to a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me, every, uh, t- told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. And then let's jump down to 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, I thank you that it is powerful, that it is living, that it is active, that it divides truth from lies. And God, I pray that you just let your word illuminate our hearts and our path today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, I recently had a birthday a few weeks ago, actually, and I turned what to me is the oldest I've ever been. Um, and so I'm, I'm 38 years old. I turned 38 uh, on March 22nd. Just in case you want to put that in your calendar, next year it's going to happen at the same time, and I'll be 39 and even more depressed, and I'll need more gifts. So, um, but I turned 38, and for me, that's old. Like, I know that I'm getting older. Like, my body tells me I'm getting older. When I, when I like, go to move somewhere, like, these grunts come out of no, like, and people ask me, are you okay? I'm 38. That's, that's, that's what I am. I don't know if that's okay or not, but that's what it is. Like, I, I know this because the last few weeks even, and if you tell Pastor Rocky, I promise you, I will come to your house. I'm just kidding, but I've noticed, I've noticed that there's more gray in my beard, and that's not okay, and here's the reason why. It's because when Pastor Rocky and I kind of go back and forth, you know, he's always got me on the hair thing. Like, he's got, you know, that glorious mane of hair that, you know, just like, you know, whatever he wants to do with his hair, it happens, and it's just, you know, it's like dark, it's like the original color, you know, and all that. And so I got nothing. Like, when we start talking back and forth to each other, I got nothing to say at him about that. But when it comes to beards, I'm just saying, like, he's got a whole lot of not original color in that beard, because there's a whole lot of gray coming out here. Now I'm starting to get it, it's patching in, and I'm like, I can't do this. Like, that's an instant loss for me. I can't do that. And so, like, like, I, I realize it's very apparent, it's very obvious to me that I am getting older, and there are moments when I'm kind of, I wouldn't say depressed, but I'm a little disappointed by that. You know, I'm like, oh man, I really, like, I can't do some of the things that I used to be able to do. I go out and play basketball, you know, with some of the guys from the church every once in a while, and when I do that, like, my mind is still really sharp, and so I'll think that my body is over there defending the ball, and then I look down, and like, my feet haven't moved, and I'm like, I'm supposed to be over there, and my mind, I'm over there, but the body just doesn't do exactly what it's supposed to do. So there are disappointing moments for me. However, as I'm sure that some of you have discovered as you get older, there are also great opportunities and you learn some things. Now, I know that you're looking at me and if you're older than 38, you're just chuckling to yourself. You're like, (laughs) just wait. I get it. All right. I know that that's what you're thinking. And if you're younger than me, you're looking at me like, oh, that old guy, I hope, I hope that I can look that good at 38 years old. I know. I get it. I understand. I get it. Right. 
But there are these advantages that kind of pop in my mind every once in a while about getting older and, and, and kind of, you know, one of those things for me is realizing that I had some opportunities to experience some things in the history of the world that other younger generations coming after me have not had an opportunity to experience. And one of those things is, is quite possibly the greatest invention of the 19th century, or the, I guess it would have been the 20th century in the 1900s, and it was this amazing place with a big blue awning, and it, what looked like their logo was a ticket stub that was ripped in half, and it said Blockbuster Video on it, right? <laughs> like a really, really good weekend, like a really good Friday night at the Petrush house, because I'm an only child, and so it's just me and mom and dad. They get home from work. I was home from school. They look at me sometimes and say, listen, TGIF, they're all reruns tonight. So step by step and Family Matters, we'll watch those next week. <laughs> I'm saying. <laughs> That's what's wrong with the country right there. Those two shows went off the air, and it all just spiraled down. But like, I, you know, we're gonna, this is going to be a blockbuster night. That's what they would say. Let's say we get a blockbuster night. And so I know that this is really difficult for you to understand and process if you're young enough to not remember having to rent movies. But what we would have to do as a family is we'd have to get dressed, we'd have to go into the car, and we'd have to drive to this storefront location. We could not stream these movies on our phones and on our computers because when I was like in middle school and high school, when you tried to go online on your computer, it sounded like your computer was going to die. You remember that? You know, that whole thing happened. You were not streaming anything. You were lucky to check your email and then hope that nobody got on the phone in the other room and knocked you offline. Can I get an amen for some of the old folks? I'm just saying. So we would actually physically have to go to the store, to Blockbuster, and we'd show up, and I just remember the optimism of a Friday night at Blockbuster. Man, it's just like you open the doors and the smell of plastic just assaulted. Your senses and VHS tapes were all lined up on the rows, and you just like this endless possibility. And, there, and for some reason, like, there, I feel like there were like a billion people in that store on Friday nights, because we had no lives apparently in the 90s, I don't know. But like, there were so many people there, and everybody was so excited. Like, forget Disney, this is the happiest place on earth right here. Like, unlimited potential for an awesome Friday night. And so, you know, you'd walk around, you'd pick a movie and just hope that it was good. You didn't have IMDb on your phone. You could not tell what the ratings were. There were no rotten tomatoes. Nobody knew what that was. So you just had to guess. And when you got that movie home, you were watching that whole movie because somebody spent $5 to rent that whole movie. And if it was terrible and awful, you were still watching it from opening credits to closing credits. It didn't matter because you rented that movie. Does anybody remember those days? Did I get a hand that said, I remember the blockbuster days? Yeah. I like Blockbuster so much that when I was in high school, I was a senior in high school, I was going to get a little job on the side to make some money before I went off to college. I applied at our local Blockbuster because I thought, man, this has got to be the easiest job in the world. Seriously. I just sit around and you get like two free rentals a week. Plus, you got to watch all the new releases one week before they were released to the public. Like, I made friends because I was working at Blockbuster my senior year. Like, it was the cool thing to do for me. It might not have been for you. I get it. And so I applied and I got this job at Blockbuster and, and, and the whole luster wore off really quickly. Like when you start working at a place that you like visit, like as a customer, it is totally different on the other side of that counter, right? And I remember one of my least favorite things about working at Blockbuster Video was 
doing the, the returns for the movies. When people would bring them by, they'd put them in the return movie slot, you know, from the outside. And, and it, the, although it was also my favorite part is when you worked like the closing shift because Blockbuster closed at midnight. And if your movie was not returned by midnight, you got a late fee assessed to your account, right? And so watching people power slide into the parking lot at like 11.59, like throwing their movies, hoping that it just found that slot, you know, because they, I don't want to pay the 99 cents, you know? And, but, but the worst part of that job was actually having to get all those movies out of that bin and check them all back in because back in the days of VHS, like it wasn't like DVD and it wasn't like, you know, the streaming stuff. You had to actually, when you were done, you still had work to do after the movie was over. You had to rewind that tape, right? Nobody rewound the tapes ever. Shame on you. If that was you, shame on you. You know who you are, right? But man, I hated it. There was even like this, this beautiful poetry in this vinyl sticker that was on each and every single tape. Do you remember what it said? Please be kind, rewind. Nobody was kind, everybody was jerks, right? <laughs> and so I would have to do all this, but like that was the least of the problems, seriously. We had these little machines, you just stick it in, rewind it, put it back on the shelf. The worst was when people obviously did not take any care of the things that they rented from Blockbuster. Those cases would come back looking like they threw it to their, their dog as a chew toy. There was food and junk and dirt and all. I mean, the stories that I could tell you, it was just nasty seeing some of the, the ways that people treated these, uh, these VHS cassette tapes. If you don't know what a VHS is, I don't have time to explain to you how glorious that technology was. Ask somebody that's a little bit older than you that's sitting in your row after this is over. They'll tell you all about that. But I, I realized very quickly that we treat things very differently when we own versus when we rent or borrow something, right? Those people that, that, that you know, kind of didn't care about that, they didn't care about it because they were renting those VHS cassettes, right? And, and we know this from our own lives too. When you rent a, uh, a house or you rent an apartment, you just treat it differently than if you would treat it if you owned it. You would, you would take care of things differently. Even if you respected the property, even if you're a good tenant, all of those things, it's just different. It's a different mindset, you know? And then there are people that don't respect it at all. You know, like I, when I was renting this little apartment with a buddy of mine in college and the person in the apartment next to us, uh, I walked downstairs to get breakfast one morning and there was a hole in the wall about the size of a human head, right? And it came from the other apartment. It was kind of like domed on my side. The drywall was cracking. You could see the insulation. And I'll never forget this is as long as I live because it scared the mess out of me. And so I, I remember looking at it and trying to figure out what was going on. There was this hole in my wall and all of a sudden I just saw fingers through the, through the insulation and the, the insulation just moved over and I, I saw two eyes looking back at me from the other apartment and I'm like, nope, no, we're moving, you know. Um, they put their head through the wall because they were playing a crazy game of inebriated wall ball at like one o'clock in the morning and the dude put his head through the wall. We treat things differently when we own them versus when we rent them, right? I know that that is true with rental cars. I know that it is, right? I know that from personal experience. Just trust me, you do not ever want to purchase a car for ownership from any of the rental locations that I have frequented in my life. Just, it's gonna save you some heartache down the road. Because when I'm driving my car and I see a pothole, I'm like, oh, I know what that pothole is gonna mean. It's gonna throw my car out of alignment and then my tires are gonna get you know, uneven wear and then I'm gonna have to replace the tires early. So I'm thinking dollar signs, cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. When I'm in a rental car, I'm like, oh, there's a pothole. Let's see how bad it's gonna hurt going 70, right? Like, so <laughs> we just treat things differently, don't we? 
When, when we rent things, if something goes wrong, it's somebody else's problem, right? When we rent things or borrow something, it's just easier to walk away from it when we're done with it or whether it doesn't serve us anymore. It's just easier and more convenient sometimes to rent rather than to own. And that's true with VHS cassette tapes in apartments and houses and cars, but I'm just wondering if we've taken that same mindset into our theology, if we have taken that same mindset of, of, of renting our faith in Jesus Christ instead of owning our faith. Do we really own our faith? Do we know what we believe, or are we borrowing somebody else's convictions because they told us that's what we should do? Do we really take the time to discover Jesus for ourselves, or do we rely on somebody else to do that and then to tell us what Jesus is, is like? And the, the, the scary thing here is that if we don't choose to own our faith, then when tough things come into our lives and our lives just turn sideways, and it's going to happen, things happen, it, it, it's going to be easier for us to walk away from a faith that's borrowed than a faith that we own. When doubts creep into our mind and, and we're asking questions and we don't really have it all figured out, it's going to be way easier just to back up from our faith if it's borrowed than if it's owned. That's the scary part about this is that it might be inconvenient to own our faith because when we bump up against really difficult situations and doubts and, and even persecution, we have to face it down and do the sometimes dirty job of really digging in and hearing God's voice and, and listening for God's voice and His direction, His instruction in our lives. It's not easy. It's difficult to do that. And it takes a whole different mindset. But before we, we go any further, I don't want anybody to misquote me. I don't want to be misunderstood. I don't want you to think that I am saying or implying at all that we can somehow own our salvation. That's not the case. We cannot own our salvation. Salvation is a gift that is given from God to us. Salvation is a gift that was purchased for us on the cross through Jesus Christ. We can't earn that, and so we can't own that. There's absolutely no way. And in fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it spells it out for us and makes it so obvious that we cannot own this salvation. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so when we say, own your faith, I'm not saying own your salvation. You can't. It's impossible. That was all decided before you were even born, and you get the opportunity to trust in that and believe in Jesus and access that free gift. That's not what I'm talking about when I say own our faith. When I talk about own our faith, I'm talking about believing it for ourselves, experiencing Jesus firsthand, not just borrowing someone else's experience and beliefs, but really owning it ourselves. And this is what we see happening in John chapter 4, where this group of people in this small town, after this interaction that Jesus has with this Samaritan woman at the well, is that people start pouring out of the city and they start experiencing Jesus firsthand. It's an amazing story. But to really get everything out of it that, that I think that we can this morning, I, I want to explain a little bit of the surrounding uh, social, uh, you know, times of, the, of, of or what was happening socially at the time, what was happening even politically at the time, historically, what was going on in this story. Because if we just read it at first glance, it's just uh, Jesus talking to somebody about living water, and, and they get into a theological discussion, and, and, he, and he knows everything about her. But I, I feel like the implications of what he did 
and how he approached this woman and what he said to her are so deep and so profound in our lives, so much that we can learn from. And I think the first thing that we need to know right off of the bat is that Jews and Samaritans hated each other. I mean, that is probably like the, the, the understatement of the century. They hated each other. There was such extreme racism from both groups, but especially from Jews to Samaritans. They hated them. They didn't want to be around them. They didn't want to speak to them. They didn't want to be spoken to by a Samaritan. I mean, it was bad. It was a tense social climate for Jews and Samaritans. It, it was basically to the point of, I'm going to live over here, and you go live over there, and we're not going to have any interaction at all. We hate you that much. I don't even want to see you on the street. I don't want to speak to you. You don't speak to me. We're just going to live our separate lives. That's kind of how they, they functioned in this society. It was extreme racism, and it was very, very tense in those moments, right? And so Jesus, who is a Jew, is at this well in the middle of the day. There's a Samaritan woman who walks up, she starts getting water, and he starts talking to her, which is unheard of for a ton of reasons. One, it's a Jewish person talking to a Samaritan, which just didn't happen. It was odd. It was out there, and, and it was just really kind of a social faux pas for a Jew to be doing that with a Samaritan. But then on top of it, Jesus is a man, and the Samaritan is a woman. And back then, for a Jewish man, they didn't speak to women publicly. In fact, there were some rabbis that, that in that time, they didn't even speak publicly to their wives or to their daughters in public. They would, they would not do that. There were, there were some rabbis that took it so far to the extreme that they were called the bloody rabbis because what they would do when they see, saw a woman even passing in the street, they would close their eyes. They took it to the nth degree. And so they would close their eyes and they would run into stuff. They would run into walls and people and structures and they would bloody their nose and their face out of fear of having to speak to a woman in public. And so you've got this scene now that's set of a Jewish man initiating a conversation with a Samaritan woman. It was racially very controversial. So socially, it was scandalous, right? But Jesus does the unthinkable. Jesus initiates conversation. Jesus starts talking. And I think this is such a, a beautiful snapshot. This is just such a beautiful picture of who Jesus is. If you want to know about the character of Jesus, then I think that we don't have to look too much further than this one instance. Because what Jesus doesn't do here is he doesn't wait for this Samaritan woman to break the awkward silence, right? He doesn't wait for her to crack a joke to like ease the tension. He doesn't wait for her to, to confess all her sins before he'll talk to her and engage in conversation with her. He doesn't wait for her to get her whole life cleaned up before he engages in this, this, this dialogue with her. What does he do? He initiates the whole relationship. He starts the whole thing. He knows everything about this woman, yet he still decides to initiate this relationship. And thousands of years ago, Jesus chose to initiate a relationship with you and with me by giving his life on the cross. It's who Jesus is. It's his character. It's his nature. He will always, always, always initiate a relationship with you and with me, regardless of what we have going on in our lives regardless of the sin, regardless of all the junk that we carry around with us, he will always initiate. 
So we find Jesus starts this conversation with this woman. They talk about water and living water, and she's a little confused by some of the things that he's saying. She tries to, you know, to try and understand it, and he asks her to go get her husband to talk about this living water. And this was not uncommon. Remember the, the way that the society worked? It was not really a, a, a positive thing for a man to be talking to a woman, and so it was pretty common for him to ask for her husband to come out and have the discussion together with the husband there, Right? But Jesus isn't just doing that to socially fit in. Jesus doesn't really care about socially fitting in. Jesus is asking that question because he wants her response. And she says, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right, you have had five. And the guy you're with right now, he's not your husband. Then it gets really awkward, really quickly, right? I mean, as she tries to backpedal, change the subject, all those kind of things. And then finally, A conversation that starts by Jesus asking, can I have a drink of water, ends with Jesus saying, I am the Messiah. It's an amazing moment where essentially Jesus is saying to this woman, I'm extending grace, I'm extending mercy, I'm extending compassion, I'm extending all of these things to you. I know everything about you, I know what you've done, I know who you are, and, and I know the racial implications. I know, you know, the, there's, there's racism against you. I realize that there's, there's, you know, this sexist kind of, uh, you know, uh, dialogue and narrative that's going on in our society. I know all of those things, but I'm still reaching out to you, knowing that you've had five husbands and the guy that you're with right now is not your husband, which would have meant, honestly, for her, even in her town, in her village, she would have been talked about a lot. She would have a a reputation as being pretty promiscuous. She would have had those experiences where she'd be walking down the street and a group of women are talking all together. They stop talking when she walks by and they start giggling after she's gone. That kind of experience was probably most of what she experienced. In fact, the the fact that that we're reading about this story happening in the middle of the day, high noon, right? It It was the hottest part of the day for them. And she's out there by herself at this well says a lot. Because most of the time, women, when they would go out and get water, this was about a half a mile away from the village where they were, they would go in the morning because it was still cool. And there's a really good chance that this woman is out here enduring the heat and having to suffer through some of this stuff because she doesn't want to have to deal with what the other women are going to say about her at the, at the well. And so here she is. She walks out there carrying all this baggage, some of the stuff that she was just kind of born into. She didn't get to choose. Some of the stuff that that because of her choices in life have landed her in this moment. And kind of all mixed together and she's carrying this baggage, she's carrying this shame, she's carrying the guilt of some of her decisions, and all of a sudden she comes face to face with Jesus. And what does she see? Does she see, like everybody else in her town, these, these really judgmental stares? Does she see somebody that just wants to make fun of her and put her down or, or try to elevate himself by, by putting her in a lower place? No, when she looks into the eyes of Jesus, she starts seeing love and truth and grace and compassion. She sees that Jesus knows everything about her and still loves her in spite of all of those things. She experiences Jesus firsthand, and it absolutely changes her life forever. She realizes, I don't have to have it all figured out. I don't have to get myself fixed, that there is Jesus, and he is inviting me into a relationship with him in spite of everything that I've already done. And her her life just changes. And in this moment, we see her with this very real experience with a very real Jesus, and she begins to own her faith in this moment. 
And I think it teaches us something very interesting and something very profound, and it's this, is that we don't own our faith by following rules or by fitting in. We own our faith by falling in love with Jesus. That's where it all has to start. It all has to start with Jesus. We can't follow enough rules to be good enough to to make God love us. We can't fit in enough with what everybody else is doing enough to make God love us. We have to realize that when we come face to face with Jesus, he knows everything about us, the things that nobody else knows about us, all of the good stuff, all the bad stuff, all the things that, that, you know, that only our closest family knows, the things that nobody else knows. He knows all of it, and he still loves us. That's the experience that she has with Jesus, and that's the experience that we have to have with Jesus as well. And her response is, it's amazing. It's beautiful. It's perfect. Because what does she do? The disciples show up and they see the, the, the Jewish man talking to the Samaritan woman and, you know, they're trying to figure out what's going on, but they don't want to say anything because probably Jesus, you know, would, would probably talk, uh, you know, to them pretty plain in front of her. And so they don't really say anything, but they're trying to figure it out. She is, is just, I mean, just life changed. She drops the, the, the pot that she has for water and she runs off into town. And she starts telling everybody, whether they would listen or not, listen, you have to come see this man who told me all that I've done. Is this the Christ? Is this the Messiah? That's what she starts saying. And people believe her. Think about this just for a moment. Think about how different she was when she ran back into that village versus when she went out for water that day. When she walked out for water that day, she had a reputation that followed her out there. She had a reputation that preceded her journey back into town, but something was different. Something had changed because there's now credibility somehow with the story that she's telling about this man that's out at the well that told her everything that she had ever done. And she's questioning now, is this, could this be? the Messiah, and people believe her. The Bible says that that people believed in Jesus because of her testimony, because of what she said. People believed without ever seeing Jesus, without ever meeting him, without ever coming face to face with Jesus. They believed just based on her ecstatic testimony, her life change that just happened. Her countenance must have been beaming. There must have been something about her that, that just read, this woman is not the same woman that went out there. Things are different with her now. And so all of these people in this town start believing, but they don't just depend on her story to put their faith in. They decide, no, 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 I've got to meet this Jesus. If this Jesus is everything that you say that he is, and I believe, I want to see him. I want to meet him. I want to shake hands. I want to have a conversation. I want to know for myself. And there's this dialogue between these people in the town and this woman they they probably would never have talked to on any other circumstance on any other occasion in John chapter 4 and verse 42 and it says that they said to the woman it is no longer everybody say no longer no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. What these men and women in the town started to tell her was, listen, we believe because you told us what happened. We believed in Jesus before we even got out here and saw him face to face, but no longer. That's not why we believe anymore. We believe now because we've seen him face to face and we've experienced Jesus on a very real and a very personal level. It's like they were saying to her, 
I believe because you said that he didn't marginalize you because of your gender or your ethnicity, but no longer. Now I believe because I've seen and I have felt that same love firsthand. It's like they looked at her and said, you know, I believed because you said that he spoke truth but extended grace, but no longer. Now I believe because I've seen for myself that he knows my sins and he still offers me a better way. It's like they were looking at her and saying, I believe because you said that he offered you living water, but no longer. Now I believe because his word has quenched my soul. And so they're having this, this, this moment where basically they're saying, I am not going to live on borrowed faith. I can't just have my faith in your experience with Jesus. I've got to experience Jesus on my own. I want to own my own faith. And the reality is, is it's time for us to do the same thing. It's time for us to declare over our lives, no longer, no longer am I going to depend on somebody else's faith to get me through. It's time for some of us to say, I believed because I was raised in a Christian home, but no longer. Now I believe because I've experienced Jesus Christ for myself. I believe because Pastor Rocky's sermons are great and they, they would just get me through the week until the next Sunday. And then that sermon would get me through the week until the next Sunday. And then that sermon to the next one. And, 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 the, and the music, it, it just kind of, it lifted me up enough just to get through the week till I could get here again on Sunday. But no longer. Now I believe, because I don't just open up my Bible app on Sundays, I've committed to reading God's Word. It is life and it nourishes me. And I don't just have to worship in a room with a bunch of other people on a Sunday. I worship God with everything that I do. I believed because that coworker would tell me about the great Christian book that she's reading, and she would read me all the parts that she highlighted at work on Monday, but no longer. Now I believe because I've given my life to Christ, and I have experienced his love. I, I, I believe because my spouse would drag me to church with them, but no longer. Now I believe because Jesus healed me, and Jesus has set me free. No longer. I believe that in some of our lives this morning, we need to get to that line in the sand and we need to say no longer. No longer am I just gonna borrow somebody else's faith, but I'm gonna own my faith. No longer am I gonna believe just because somebody else tells me. I'm gonna believe because I have had this experience with God. Now, I'm not saying that it's, that it's wrong or that it's even bad to borrow somebody else's faith to help us climb up into our own, but it just can't stay there. It can't. We cannot depend on someone else to experience God and then put our faith in their faith. It doesn't work that way. And let me tell you why that doesn't work, is that we cannot afford that kind of borrowed faith when life gets difficult. When bad things happen to us, we cannot afford to have a borrowed faith because a borrowed faith is a faith that we can walk away from really easily. A borrowed faith is just going off of somebody else's experience. And so what happens when life gets difficult or when doubts creep in? What happens when the diagnosis is cancer? What happens when that relationship just falls apart, crumbles? You did everything that you possibly could, and it's just in, in shambles. What happens when you lose your job or you don't get that promotion that you desperately needed to provide for your family? What happens when that child that's grown, your son or your daughter, walks away from their faith after they're out of your house? I mean, what happens when 
we're tempted to, to, to back into that life that we used to live and, and who we used to be before we met Jesus and encountered him and, and it changed our lives. See, a borrowed faith doesn't get us through any of those moments. And we've got to own our faith so that in those moments, we can point back to an experience that we've had. We can point back to the rock that doesn't move. Now, one great thing about this woman is that you probably could not talk her out of that experience that she had with Jesus. I mean, imagine this woman who walked out with that reputation, running back in, telling everybody about what happened. And everybody knows now that there's somebody that knows everything she's done, right? You could not talk that woman out of that experience. You couldn't convince her that that never happened. You could not pull her away from that faith that she had in Jesus because I can guarantee you that not everybody was super excited to see her. Not everybody was really excited that the Savior of the world decided to reveal himself to this woman who had five previous husbands and was living with a guy that wasn't hers and was ashamed of, of living in that community. I guarantee you that there were still people in that town and still people in, that, in that, that area of the world that still looked down on her and that still questioned her and it still brought up her past and still would say things about who she used to be and what she used to do and all of those things. She had to endure, I am sure, some criticism. She had to endure endure some difficult times. But I would think that she didn't have to go too far back in her mind to remember that moment at that well with nobody else around and Jesus's face because she experienced it for herself. You couldn't take that away from her. You couldn't convince her that it didn't happen. And so when times got tough, that's the experience that she could access because she knew that Jesus was real. It wasn't because somebody else told her about it. It's because she experienced him. And all those people came out and they said, listen, we believed because you did. Your faith is so compelling. Your faith is so amazing. But no longer do we believe because of that. We believe because we've experienced God. And so now you have this whole other group of people that when they go through difficult times and they walk through difficult circumstances, they can go back on that time that they went out to meet that, woman, that man that the woman from the well introduced them to. Can the same thing be said about us? When we are faced up against opposition, when we deal with difficult times, can you say the same thing? Can you say, you know, I, I, I know for a fact because I've met Jesus, because Jesus is real to me, because I had an experience with Jesus, because I know who Jesus is because I read his word and it speaks to me and it's alive. Are we at the place where we're willing to say, no longer, no longer am I going to put my faith in somebody else's faith? That might have gotten me started. I might have started to believe because of that, but no longer. I'm going to believe because I believe. I'm going to believe because I've experienced it. No longer am I going to go off of somebody else's experience, but today I'm going to experience Life is going to be different. Life is going to change for me. I'm not borrowing somebody else's faith. I'm going to own my own faith. Thank you for listening to the podcast of DCC. For service times and directions, log on to www.destinycommunitychurch.org. Thanks again for listening.